It does feel like it's been going on for a while. It's actually more than a week now since uh, she first uh, hit Twitter with her worries about um, the government's separatist agenda. This was in response to the announcement by the government of a a Māori health authority as policy. Um, On Facebook, the same day, she had a longer um, post. So the tweet was, I suppose, potentially a bit of a blurt, but the Facebook post had language like uh, they plan to segregate healthcare, dividing us into Māori and everyone else. And, you know, it's still going on now, um, somewhat eight, nine days later. Um, On Morning Report the following day, Judith Collins actually went further saying we would end up with two uh, systems by stealth and then broadened it out into other areas, education, welfare, and said, you know, National wouldn't stand for this uh, separatist New Zealand. And I think... The, the attention, I mean, already uh, that's twitched the antenna of political journalists uh, who will be alive to anything that they think is um, playing the race card. And uh, the fact that she then doubled down on all this in a speech to National Party members, and that was the first of a series of speeches she's due to give to party members in different regions, it all started to look like an organised campaign that, you know, is, is in part designed to get the media's attention. She wanted that reported and... Uh, and, of course, political reporters interpreting that as saying that this is an effort to get more profile for her at a time when there's plenty of other media comment pieces saying that her leadership's under threat. Well, if it was a plan, has it worked out for her? Well, uh, as you said, there's certainly um, plenty of coverage of her. Every time walking around the corridors here in RNZ, all the uh, the screens uh, seem to have Judith on them uh, several times a day. So, yes, uh, it's been covered. But the fact is that because the political reporters are so alive to what they think is this particular strategy to pick at the issue of race and, you know, one law for all, uh, and the fact that the pundits and political reporters think we've, we've seen this before. I think there's now so much coverage of that political strategy that possibly that's overwhelming the issue that she might uh, have wanted to address. And in fact, one of the first, uh, I think, to write about this in a, in a pretty organised way was Ben Thomas, you know, former um, National Party press secretary, pretty frequent pundit around the media. Um, he said in the stuff column... Um, I quite like the image there. The, in the stately wing of the Parliament building reserved for the opposition leader's office, uh, it seems there must be a small see-through cabinet labelled racial separatism with a sign saying, in case of low polling, break glass. And uh, inside the cabinet, what, what he described as a get-out-of-jail-free card for oppositions in the wilderness. And uh, his point, really, in writing that column was that this actually isn't a very good long-term strategy, hasn't worked for politicians who've tried to do it. Um, but I did, it did make me laugh a bit when, uh, on the following Monday, last uh, couple of days back, Nine to Noon's politics slot spent almost the full half hour talking about this, about Judith Collins' tactics. And uh, they had another former political staffer turned PR man, Neil Jones, as one of her um, pundits there. And uh, he had a rather different image for the race card. You know, there is a big red button on the leader's desk on the third floor of Parliament in the opposition leader's office. And when things are going badly you bash that race button. And that's what she's doing. National was that when Labour was in as well? Was that how we got Chinese-sounding names? I think that was, I think that was actually, actually stumbling over and landing on it. Um. Yeah, so either way, I guess both pundits, um, Thomas and, and Jones and, and many others who've been writing about this, has pretty much agreed on the tactics that, um, that Collins had used, whether they... Uh, would use the image of a, a race card or a big red button or whatever. But uh, Ben Thomas reckoned, uh, he said that, that there's a dim political memory, he described it, of uh, Don Brash's speech in 2004, the Orewa speech, 
um, which gave National a, a, a bump in polling when Helen Clark was Prime Minister. They were in opposition. And he calls it a dim political memory. But, I mean, so much has been written about it um, in recent days that uh, I don't think it's, it's all that dim. And actually on that nine to noon politics slot, Catherine Ryan was asking her pundits uh, about this, asking, you know, would it, would it get... Judith Collins' immediate votes was the way she put it, and that kind of gets my back up because, you know, we're not due to vote until um, 2023 in the next election, so there's there's no immediate votes. But I guess she just means immediate support. But what I thought was interesting is when they talked about um, whether this was kind of the Orewa speech 2.0, uh, Catherine was the RNZ political editor at that time and covered it. She was there uh, when Don Brash delivered it. And she said that this assumption that that speech back then was a calculated masterstroke of media manipulation is actually a bit of a myth. This great mythology that somehow the media were all primed for it. Most of us couldn't get the damn speech. I, I was reading it to Tracy Watkins while she drove the rental car. And I, I don't even think the New Zealand Herald, forgive me if I'm wrong, had a press gallery reported there that night. I think they had a, um, a, one of their Auckland-based reporters. So... This mythology that's built up around the grand strategy around this, I can tell you, has been slightly overstated. Mm. And I didn't know that. I, I had actually assumed that this was uh, a major thing where the National Party decided to relaunch itself and uh, with this one law for all approach and, and that the media had all, all been lined up. So, yeah, interesting to hear her say that um, actually uh, it was all a bit improvised and, uh, yeah, some of the political pundits looking at the current uh, iteration of this, Judith Collins, these past eight, nine days are saying the same thing. They don't think it's been all that well organised. Well, how did uh, this affect the analysis of the actual health reforms themselves and the overall issue of Māori health, wealth and wellbeing? Yeah, well, that's that's a shame, isn't it? Because I think that's been well and truly overshadowed. Um, and actually writing about that, Newsroom's political editor, Joe Moyer, um, said that she thinks the political point that uh, Judith Collins is desperately trying to make, uh, that the health system should be based on need, not race, which to a lot of people will sound, you know, a very reasonable, even laudable uh, thing. Um, she says that's that's been completely overwhelmed by the, the way she's taken to it. I think she described it as ignoring facts to make a political point. And Jo Moyer herself made the point, look, you know, it's, it's kind of a silly argument because in the end, uh, in New Zealand, need and race, are intrinsically linked, and anyone who's trying to tackle problems in some area like health, where there are huge disparities, um, have to have to confront that. Um, but I suppose one thing about it is that when uh, Judith Collins and indeed other national uh, party politicians, it's not just her, have been talking about a whole separatism, not just in health. They've been uh, putting the spotlight on this um, He Puapua report about Māori co-governance, um, which I think the ACT Party was uh, trying to get released under the Official Information Act. So part of that is out, but not all of it. Um, you know, a pretty broad document talking about co-governance towards 2040, even constitutional reforms and so on. Um, and with that in mind, uh, the Herald Social Issues reporter, Michael Nielsen, RNZ's Katie Scotcher, both did really good background about the report because I knew nothing about it, like I suspect a lot of other people. Um, and Matthew Hooten, writing his weekly Herald column last Friday, pointed out that actually this is all down to John Key back in 2010 when National was in power, um, deciding that New Zealand would support the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And that's why all these years later this report is actually written and in circulation and the government will face you know some sort of pressure to... Um, bring out some of this vision uh, and uh, incorporate it into some sort of policy and we'll probably have to report to the UN 
uh, whether they're meeting these obligations or not. So Matthew Hooten wrote about it. He doesn't really think it's a blueprint for the future because, you know, there's, there's going to be all sorts of other things governments will have to pursue. Um, but some parts of it could be acted on. And quite right, this should now be in the public domain and, you know, people can ask uh, the government whether they really intend that parts of this should be its policy in the future. So I guess we wouldn't be talking about that now um, and having that discussed in Parliament and elsewhere if we hadn't had the political rows and media coverage um, sparked by um, Judith Collins' reaction to the health authority plan. And now you want to talk about rabbits. Yeah, yeah, this is a bit of a change of pace, isn't it? But um, today, uh, Newsroom launched a, a series of um, New New Zealand On Air funded videos by investigations editor Melanie Reid, who many people will remember as a, a long-time uh, investigative reporter on TV3, programmes like um, 60 Minutes uh, and Third Degree and others. Um, this is a series of short sort of sub-10-minute videos all on the topic of um, the South Island's exploding rabbit population. Um, it's billed as a, an investigation and they've given it the title Apocalypse Down but I was primed for this because on social media they trailed it in advance uh, with a sort of 30 second promo with some jaw dropping scenes of um, rabbit infested uh, central Otago landscapes and also the sort of southern lakes region Queenstown uh, and so on um, with uh, rabbits emerging as, as one person put it like maggots on a carcass so you know, visualise that if you can against um, the soundtrack they put on it Yeah, so pretty uh, doomy soundtrack indeed. Um, Newsroom's own uh, Vanita Prasad described that as medieval dubstep. So I don't know. I don't know. Do you think that's an apt description? More like library music. <laughs> but it, they, they weave it through uh, some of the videos too, and it's kind of effective because some of those scenes are staggering. But what I liked about it is that partly it goes to regions and towns we hardly ever see in the news. You know, it's good that they've gone out and done it. She's very versatile, isn't she, from Oranga Tamariki to Rabbits in the South? Yeah, and, and I, I, I think it's really good. And also the way they split up the videos, because, you know, as you're watching it, it feels like TV current affairs. And, you know, for uh, people familiar with her work in TV3 and the style of it, it just it almost feels like, you know, you're watching one of those old TV3 programs. But the way they've divided up is interesting. So the first part showed really vividly just how infested parts of those landscapes are uh, in some small places like um, Moraki and, and Cromwell, uh, for example. Uh, they'll talk to the people who are suffering from this who say there's absolutely no plan for it. Then in part two, um, there's a history of the, the rabbit problem uh, from way back in colonial times when they were introduced and no one could quite see or foresee what a pest problem we were going to have. Um, and then things like, I think, 1997, they introduced uh, Khaleesi virus illegally, and that actually dealt with part of the problem. But um, but it's back again, and some rabbits now resistant to that, so quite a bit to learn there. And the third part um, was made along with Jill Herrell, uh, Jill sorry Jill Heron, who's a freelancer based in, in Cromwell. Um, and that's about the, the rise of what they call the, the lifestyle rabbit. And the problem here <laughs> is changing land use because... Um, there's so many different types of, of land. What, what was open space is now um, being farmed and built on. And actually, here's uh, an example that I pulled out from it. This is Melanie Reid talking to uh, a guy who manages a vineyard in Cromwell. Vines get ringbacked, especially July, August. Uh, water systems can get hit. What does that mean? 
you look around, there's water systems everywhere, drippers and all that, and if the water doesn't get to the grapes, the grapes don't grow, and the rabbits like water. So they'll just go and nibble a hole into it. So you're telling me that they actually sort of eat right through these plastic irrigation systems? Yeah, get the water out. At the moment the nets are up, oh, there's a rabbit there. There's always a rabbit somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so that's an illustration of that problem with the land use because they can't use the same control methods they used to use, you know, trapping, shooting, whatever, where people are now living sometimes in pretty flash properties. There are pets and horses and all sorts. So that's the problem. And nowadays, as Melanie described it, the onus is on the landowners to do some of the some are and some aren't uh, doing rabbit control stuff, which can cost thousands. Um, so, yeah, the problem's just escalating and, you know, the rabbits are breeding away. It's a really difficult problem, isn't it? Um, especially for the rabbits themselves. Uh, I know they're a huge pest, but, you know, who's, who's to blame for this plague and what's going to be the solution to it? Yeah, well, hopefully there's actually... I. Uh, got in touch with Melanie Reed to find out how much more of the series there is to come. She says four more videos dropping tomorrow so there might be a bit more about that but for the moment it's the landowners and the residents are blaming the Otago Regional Council. Uh, they say though the council that there are just hot spots and said look you know you go to places where people don't live and aren't reporting these problems actually it's um, it's relatively under control so yeah hopefully there'll be a bit more um, context about it because I would like to know a bit more about it but um, she does get, Melanie Reed did get the uh, environmental officer from the regional council to say actually they've never prosecuted any landowners for failing to get the rabbits under control. So that's that's got to be part of the problem. But um, I did see one potential solution here, which was um, the Wairarapa Times Age had a story saying, uh, following on from you might have, did you hear about those reports that pet food is running out? Certain things like whiskers and purina food for cats and dogs. Okay, um, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, well, uh, oh, do you know the story? Because uh, <laughs> I can guess they quoted a local vet to, who said, "Look, uh, this is an opportunity." changing proteins can actually improve the pet so let's find another food source she says uh, chicken fish possums all good and rabbit and she says no shortage in New Zealand anything that wiggles and squeaks is good to go for your pet so maybe that's a solution get the central Otago and southern lakes rabbits uh, into um, pet food all over the country isn't the issue though how to actually catch them? I mean, you you might shoot at them, but um, you, know, you may miss, and you might put the rabbit through hell. Oh well, yeah. I don't think anyone's too bothered about the uh, rabbit's welfare because uh, when you look at those scenes in Melanie's videos, there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them um, living. And in fact, one of the one of the guys tells a story about floods. Uh, that hit the Southern Lakes area and uh, a farmer watched the rabbits actually crawling up the backs of sheep so they could get out the flood water and piggybacked up off the sheep. So they're just absolutely everywhere. So it's the control measures they're going to have to do uh, to um, to get it under control. And I don't think rabbit welfare is actually um, top of the list. It will be for some people. I just think I'll throw that in there. Uh, but The Apprentice Aotearoa, that's our next topic, and that starts next week on TVNZ. Yeah, just really briefly. So, um, you know, I've got the, the PR blurb from TVNZ in the week, you know, highlighting this is going to be on, and uh, absolutely no mention of the fact that um, you know, in 2010, I don't think the series was a huge success, and then within a year, uh, their sort of Trump figure uh, was Terry Serapisos. Within a year, he was declared bankrupt and had debts of, I think, about $50 million. Even his mother was declared bankrupt. Uh, so I'm kind of surprised they're reviving the series at all. But the PR blurb actually pointed to another interesting thing. All 14 candidates who are going to be contesting it on Monday uh, next week 
all aged between 20 and 42, and all bar one who's actually a Sydney resident, so I don't know how that works, all of them from Auckland. And I don't know if people will like that, because I went back and checked, and in the 2010 series, um, half of them were from Auckland, the rest from Christchurch and and Wellington, so yeah, the rest of the country might feel a bit more like they're, um, you know, being broadcast Auckland TV out of the big smoke. It saves on travel and accommodation. Well, that's what some people <laughs> in social media have been pointing out. But the other thing is, it all looks a bit low budget because the top prize is fifty thousand dollars for investment in your business idea. And in twenty ten, um, Terry Serapisos is giving out a hundred grand and a lease of a luxury BMW and accommodation in one of the hotels he owns. So um, the prizes have fallen by half, even though they've got a big budget sponsor. So uh, I don't know if um, people will respond to the, too well to that when it airs. Mike Pirro looks a bit scary as well. Yeah, well, they, I think they're trying to soften it because they're trying to <laughs> say we don't want a repeat of Trump because Trump's a bit of a toxic brand. Uh, they pumped Terry Serapisos as TV2's Trump back in 2010, uh, but now uh, they're saying this is going to be different and uh, it's, it's going to be the opposite to Trump-style business. So oh, I guess cert- we'll see. He certainly looks different than when he's selling real estate, put it that way. Yeah, Mr. Cheerful to Mr. I'm about to kill you. Yeah, and then trying to get an airline off the ground as well at the moment, which is another thing he'll be involved with. I guess most of the series probably in the can by now. He might need some agony aunt advice. Is that what they're called these days? Well, I don't know. Agony aunts? I thought maybe I was using a bit of an old term um, when I when I put. But the thing about this one is, the staff um, had a a story on their website which was. uh, you know, because I, you know, they've been made a big play of how they've got past the clickbait game. But in their most viewed list, there was the story headline: "My wife got us into massive debt," and um, I couldn't help but click on that and have a look at it. And it turned out to be the online. Oh, hang version. on, why? Well, I, I don't know. It's nothing to do with my personal situation. Um, I, you reckon? Yeah. Look, I'm not in any financial problems. Um, no, no, absolutely nothing to do with that. But I was no, just no, curious. I didn't suggest that. But that's interesting that you went, you clicked on it. My wife got us into massive debt. Well, I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm I was just curious. Maybe it was Sunday. It was my day off. Maybe I thought I'll, I'll, I'll indulge in a bit of clickbait. But I was yep. curious. No, actually, no. Well, I could say, couldn't I, that stuff had promised that they've moved beyond clickbait. And here I saw this story. So, OK, let's see. Maybe this is a legit story. So, actually, no, this was serious journalistic inquiry. I've changed my story there. Um, but I had a look at it. It turned out to be the online version of... Um, uh, Star Times Sunday Magazine agony column that's been running for two years, but I, I literally never noticed it. I do buy the paper, but it's sandwiched in between the um, the cooking bit and the fashion section, so I probably just don't read through that far. Um, but the column is called Petra Says, and, uh, and when I looked at the footnote, it says Petra Quinn, who's the, giving the advice, is a 30-year-old professional living and working in Auckland, New Zealand. She uses a pseudonym for this column to protect her personal and career opportunities, um, but I'm thinking, why would anyone write in or, or seek or accept sort of advice on finance or relationships or even sex advice? Because um, they do say, you know, write in with your sex problems to get witty and wise advice from Petra. We're, this is someone who has no clear expertise, just says she's a professional, doesn't say in what. Um, and like, why on earth would you write in if you had no idea whether this person was in any way be qualified to give you the advice or not? A lot of um, those agony aunt columnists have a pseudonym, though, don't they? Yeah, I don't think it's that unusual, but they used to have, I think, Robin Salisbury in the same Sunday magazine, who I think was, correct me if I'm wrong, a, a qualified and recognised sex therapist, and that was for, you know, personal um, relationship issues. So, you know, there, there you go. But, but I read this one about the um, my wife got us into massive debt. It was, you know, this guy who recently found out his wife had been overspending on the credit card, maxed it out, 20 grand personal loan, didn't tell me. You know, this is all, and she's given 
giving him very sound advice about this betrayal or solid, you know, uh, she's not equivocal at, at all about it. She's saying, look, it's and actually saying at some point, I'm pretty sympathetic to those, you know, who live paycheck to paycheck can be sucked in. Maybe you need to be more understanding. I'm thinking this is actually terrible advice from my point of view. And if, if she has no legit um, uh, ex- expertise that you can check and soon operating under a pseudonym i i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend that anyone should contact uh, and get uh, petra's advice from the sunday star times if they've got serious issues you can find out who what's her name petra quinn is she won't be a petra or a quinn obviously well what is it that she does that she can't uh, that she <laughs> she's can't a 30 year old professional living and working in auckland yes but if she needs to protect her personal and career opportunities if, if there's some <laughs> something she, she doesn't want you secret, after her my, my point is you know you've got to have some sort of sense of credibility or some reason that people would want to take your advice serious particularly if it can mess up marriages and finances and stuff like that so uh you no, know, I, don't, I agree i don't think saying a 30 year old professional is um is good enough quite frankly